About five years ago, a visitor to the Bank of America in Corpus Christi, Texas, had a rather rough morning. He was a contractor and was there to install a new um, lock and door handle on the service room behind the lobby ATM. You know what I'm talking about? So you go, like, you go to the bank and there's the ATM right there when you first walk in the door. What you may not know is there's a room behind it where the bank employees secure room where they can get in and they can you know, put new money in it and take the checks out and all that stuff. And that, that door handle on the back side of the ATM was broken. And so he was called in to fix it. And he went in there and he put his tools down and was gonna go back to the truck to get some more stuff. It was, it, it, that's why he was there, to replace the broken handle. He was locked in. He was stuck, effectively, in an ATM. According to NPR's The Two-Way, uh, he had no one to call and because he left his phone in his truck. <laughs> and there was no way to make his voice heard intelligibly through the machine. Right? Those are very secure rooms. The walls are thick, right? The door is thick. So what did he have? Well, he had some paper from the receipt spool in the machine, and he happened to have a pen. So, according to the local police officer who responded to the scene, some people are coming and they're using the ATM machine, because it's still operational, and he's slipping notes through the ATM. This is a true story. That, that read, please help. I'm stuck in here, and I don't have my phone. Please call my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Most customers thought it was a prank uh, until a good Samaritan, who also thought it was a prank, but thought, well, we better call just to be sure, uh, actually called the police, you know. And the officer who responded was like, this is crazy. You know, they finally got him out. He's okay. It was five years ago, so he's, he's fine. That's somebody who's stuck. I don't know if you've ever been that stuck, but that is, that is well and truly stuck. Thank you for being here today. I'm really glad you're here. If you're new here at Chapel Rock, I'd love to meet you. When we're done, I, I plan on being down front. I'd love for you to come down and say hi. For those uh, logging on, uh, watching online, thanks for doing that. And whether you're here in the room or online, take a second and fill out your connection card. Let us know that you're here. That really helps us. A couple things uh, that I want to let you know about. But first, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5? Luke chapter 5, verse 17 is where we're going to begin today. While you're turning there, a couple things I want to tell you about. Uh, first of all, uh, ladies... Um, to our signups for the ladies' conference is uh, the women's conference is coming is starting today out in the lobby, and so uh, this uh, Fear Not conference will encourage you. Uh, you can sign up out there to do that, and uh, and it'll be it'll be a great day. There's a lot of hard work gone into planning that. I've got a special speaker coming in. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. Also, uh, again, others have asked like how how do we help the folks in Ukraine? Well, pray. That's the main thing. Pray. Um, secondly. <laughs> We have this massive stash of like Chapel Rock t-shirts and stuff, like short sleeve, long sleeve, hoodies, hats, like a bunch of stuff, okay? And um, Zach, it's driving Zach crazy. It, it like, it's like, there's, it's just clutter, you know, like, um, and we need to get rid of it. So here's what we're gonna do. Uh, the, we're just gonna sell those at like half price, half of what we have in them. And uh, all of the money, 100% of that money is we're gonna give to TCM to give to refugees. So starting next week for, the, for two weeks, if you want a Chapel Rock shirt, even if you don't want one, but you know, like I'm out of oil rags in the garage, whatever. Um, 
it will, it will help people, okay? And so for the next couple of weeks, we're gonna have a little pop-up shop open in the lobby with Chapel Rock merch. Uh, and you can grab that and, you know, give it to your grandkids for Christmas or whatever. Uh, but uh, it's just, it's a great way. 100% of the money that comes in from that, we're going to give to TCM. And 100% of that, they're going to give to uh, Eastern European pastors who are literally receiving refugees and, and trying to figure out uh, how, to, how to, whatever they can do to be Jesus to the Ukrainian people. So uh, let's, can we just take a second and pray uh, specifically for them? Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for bringing us together in freedom and peace and safety. Um, and God, we're especially mindful of it because of what's going on around the world. In, in Ukraine, I'm also reminded, God, of this, the violence in um, Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa as well. Um, just so much, Lord, all over the world. And, and we sit here in comfort um, and, and, and freedom. And so we're, we're very, very thankful for that, Jesus. We, we know that your church is being persecuted around the world. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, and, and ask you to continue to give them strength for their trial. We ask you to continue to give us hearts of openness and generosity uh, to leverage our freedoms for the sake of the gospel uh, so that your word uh, can continue to go out around the world. Help us today, Jesus, as we study it, uh, open our hearts and minds to what you would tell us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Today we're starting a short series uh, in Luke's gospel on how Jesus frees people from sin and sickness and the brokenness of their past and their present. And, and there's a word that Luke uses repeatedly in his gospel and in Acts to underscore this idea. It's the Greek word ephemi. That's what it looks like in Greek. We normally translate the word forgive, but it literally means to release to let go, to send away, which kind of gives you an idea of what the Bible writers mean when they talk about forgiveness. What does God do with our sin? He releases it. He doesn't hold it against us. He lets it go. He sends it away. And we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about places where Jesus releases people from this. He uses that word a few times, actually, in our text today. It's a pretty familiar passage. You've probably heard this story before. If you grew up in church like I did, I know you've heard this story before. It's the story of the four guys who lower their paralytic friend through the roof of the house so that Jesus can heal him. And can I warn you that you might have to work a little bit harder today to get past the nod of familiarity. That's a phrase that was coined by Mr. Fred Craddock, a preacher of my father's generation. You know what I mean, the nod of familiarity. When you hear a story you've heard before, oh, yes. We, I, I've heard that. And so you might have to work a little bit harder to get past that today. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through this passage. And there'll be some things that are really familiar to you, and there might be some new things here. And I just want to walk through it and I'd take my time and just teach the text and then offer three applications at the end. Because I think there are three people, I'm using the term metaphorically, three people in the text who are stuck. And so I want you to be looking for those as we work our way through this passage. Read with me, Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed mat, man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. 
Now, Luke does not tell us where Jesus is when this happened. Matthew and Mark do. Matthew's telling of this miracle story is really short. Mark's is roughly parallel to what we see here in Luke. Jesus is back in Capernaum, kind of served as home base for his Galilean ministry. In fact, this may very well have been in Peter's house. We don't know what house it was. We're never told. But Peter's house kind of seemed to serve as home base for Jesus. I think that's where he stayed when he was in the Capernaum area. The house is packed to the wall to wall. I mean, shoulder to shoulder, everybody's just jammed in there, right? Probably a huge portion of the town, the villages have gathered around. Maximum capacity, literally shoulder to shoulder with no room left in a place like that. Probably max 50 people, max um, and so, the, I mean, it's just, it's jammed full, probably open the windows so people can listen. I mean, you know, everybody's there. Not only that, but Luke adds the detail that even religious leaders from the capital have come up to Jerusalem, come north to hear Jesus. And Luke gives us this de- detail. He says, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. That's how the NIV translates it. And I have to admit, when I first read that, I was like, duh, <laughs> He's Jesus. Like, that's just kind of always his mode of being, right? Like, why bother to mention this? It seems weird that there might be a time that he couldn't do that. And yet, Matthew 13, 58 tells us that Jesus, and the text says, couldn't do many miracles in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. So I was curious about this. I'm like, they really piqued my attention. I'm like, I'm going to look up this word translated present, right? The power of the Lord was present. I'm thinking this is some deep theological truth, right? This is, this is the meat of the word. We're really getting into it now. And I went and I looked and you know what? It's not there. The word present is supplied by the NAV translators. What the text in the original language literally says is, and the power of the Lord was. Sorry, my bad. I think what Luke is doing here is giving us some foreshadowing about who it is we're about to read about. Because if one of the hallmarks of the Lord's identity is power, and it says that the power of the Lord was... I think we know who's here in the house. (laughs) It's God in the flesh. God has shown up. Verse 19. When they could not find a way, these are the friends, to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. So there are so many people that these four guys with their paralytic friend can't get in. So they go up on the roof Would have been flat. First century roofs in Palestine were flat. And and they dig through it and they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus. I just, can you see this in your mind? Can you just imagine this scene, right? Jesus is is sitting there, right? Because the Jewish rabbis would sit to teach and he's sitting there and, and, you know, they're they're talking and he's relating to people and all of a sudden stuff starts falling. (laughs) Like, you know, the ceiling is like crumbling, right? And, And yet dust and dirt and plaster and bits of sticks and twigs and stuff and then and then all of a sudden there's daylight right like like the light just kind of freaks out like that one's doing right now um and and stuff and then there's light and then there's not light because there's a body in that hole and it comes down and it's just weird 
here, and it's just this bizarre scene. It would have been surreal. Now, Luke does something really interesting in the text. He, he changes a detail in the story. Mark tells us that they dug through the roof. He uses the, word, the verb for dig, right? Because in first century Palestine, in, in Israel, the way that they built you know, a, a house was you had beams, like sections of a tree trunk, right? You have beams, and then over that, crosswise, they lay larger branches, and then over that, they lay twigs, and then over that, they lay straw, and then they do mud and plaster. It's really solid. Like, it makes a good floor. Like, you can walk on it, and it's secure and everything, but it enables you, I mean, basically, with a hammer or a chisel or something, you can dig through it pretty fast. You can disassemble it quickly. Luke says that there were tiles. Did you catch that? It says that they lowered him on his mat through the tiles. Luke is writing to a Greco-Roman audience. How many of you have ever seen pictures of anywhere around the Mediterranean? Red tile roofs everywhere, right? You've seen that. You've seen pictures of this. That's Luke's audience. And so he changes a detail in the story so that it will connect with his audience. He's contextualizing it for them. And I I tell you that because of this. The reason this is interesting is that when skeptics attack the reliability of the Bible, they like to say, well, it's full of contradictions. You know what they're talking about? That. Now, does it make a difference in the meaning of the text? None whatsoever. Luke is not contradicting himself it's not a contradiction it's a contextualization he's making it relevant for his audience (laughs) and he's it's it's kind of a minor detail but it's important to note because you can i mean you can trust your bible right when people say oh it's full of contradictions that's the kind of stuff they're talking about it's like that's a that's a giant nothing burger what are you talking about okay Because what Luke wants to do is draw your attention to something else that's more important next. Look at verse 20. He said, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, I have this picture of the way this happened in my head. I have have just, this is the way I see this. I don't know that it happened that way, but you can't prove it didn't, so we're going to go with what I think. Okay, I... This is the way I see this. Jesus and this paralytic, they just lock eyes for a second. And in that second, Jesus can see into this guy's soul. It says he can see that this guy and his friends have faith. He said he saw their faith. And the word there, there is inclusive, not only of the paralytic, but also his friends. It's, It's all of them. And then Jesus says something incredible. He says, your sins are forgiven. That's this word, aphemi, released let go, right? It means that God has has taken your sins away from you and sent them away. They're gone. This word translated forgiven, this Greek word aphemi appears 142 times in the New Testament, four of them just in our passage today. And about a third of the time, 45 times, it means it's translated to forgive, all right? The second most common meaning is left or left behind, It's the same word that's used when uh, the disciples, when Jesus calls the disciples and they leave their nets to follow him. That's the same word, ephemi. They they left them behind. They just dropped them and walked away. This this is one of those words. It's like the the word agape that we translate love. 
It's one of those words that was kind of a boring word in Greek, kind of normal. And the New Testament writers took this word and they just filled it with meaning and, and theological freight. Jesus tells this guy, I am releasing you from the burden of your sin. There's no rebuke. He doesn't sing an invitation to him and make him come forward because he can't walk. He just, I'm releasing you. You're free. <laughs> just forgiveness. Jesus responds to this guy because of the totality of his need. He responds with forgiveness. Look at verse 21. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive, there's the word, aphemi, who can forgive sins but God alone? See, here's the thing. If Jesus wasn't God incarnate, the Pharisees were right. I mean, they ask a really pertinent question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's this, our word again, forgive or release. This time it's on the lips of the Pharisees. They recognize that only God can release someone from the burden of their sin. You know, and they're, they're thinking this, right? Luke says that, of course, he's, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows their thoughts, right? So they've got this, this divine revelation of what, what's going on in their inner being. He says they're thinking of this. I would imagine, I, sometimes we do this, we put Jesus' personality, or we put our personality onto Jesus. I think we need to invert that, right? We need to have his personality on us, but we, we do this, I do this sometimes. Because it would have been so hard for me if I was Jesus in that moment and I knew what they were thinking, not to be like, exactly, <laughs> right? Like, who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, winking at him like, that's not what he does. That's not what he does. Look at verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, aphemi, released, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus knows their heart. He knows their heart, and so he rebukes them for their thoughts, which seems like pretty good evidence of his divinity to me, but then he gives them even more evidence, right? And I love it when Jesus does this. He, he knows what they're thinking. He just blows their collective minds by, by knowing their private thoughts, and because he's able to, because he does that, he's able to impale them on, on the, these smug, self-righteous guys. He just can impale them on the horns of a theological dilemma, Right? It, 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 like, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, if you're not God, they're both impossible. But if you are, right? Both statements are equally impossible to say without any degree of certainty of them hap you know, happening regarding forgiveness or walking unless you're God in the flesh, which he was. We read in verse 25, immediately he stood up, he, the formerly paralyzed man, stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Jesus looks at the man, he tells him, get up. And he does, right? He's released from lockdown. And that's the big idea this morning, that Jesus is the only one who can release you when you're stuck. 
And he can get you unstuck from everything that keeps you from being whole. That's what we're going to spend some time drilling into this morning. I, I think the narrative suggests three places where we get stuck. Three, there are three people who are stuck here. And it shows us how Jesus releases us from that lockdown, that paralysis. Some people get stuck in their circumstances. That's the first thing. Some people, we get stuck in our circumstances. The paralytic's friends were stuck in their circumstances. They, they wanted to get their friend to Jesus, right? He, he's, he's never going to get there on his own. He can't walk. <laughs> they can't because of the crowd. There's too many people. They can't get in the house. They're, they're stuck in their circumstances. And I think sometimes we get stuck in our circumstances too. You know, we, we, we tell people, Jesus wants you to be free from sin and, and to live lives of wholeness and, and, and to really live out the values of the kingdom, right? And they go, yeah, but I've got this addiction or I've got this family situation that is not going away until somebody dies. Like, and, or I've got, I've got this sibling who's just cantankerous or I've got a boss who won't, or I've got, and the list gets long, doesn't it? And sometimes we just feel stuck in our circumstances. Like, I don't know what to do about this. You ever been that? You ever felt that way? <laughs> Author Mike Iaconelli says, I travel a lot. He, he's a longtime youth minister, writes a lot in the youth ministry field. He said, I travel a lot. And I, I got into San Francisco one night and missed my connection back home. He lives in Southern California. He said, I was angry and upset. I called my son on the phone. I wanted him to encourage me. I was lonely. <laughs> he said, man, I'm stuck in the airport. It's been a horrible day. I've been traveling too much. And my son said... Well, you know, Dad, if you didn't travel so much, you wouldn't have things like this happen. <laughs> he said, I didn't appreciate that. I was ticked off. So I said to my son, let me talk to your son, his grandson, who's two. <laughs> he says, he, Mike says, well, I forgot that when you're two, you can't talk. And when you're 60, you can't hear. Those are his words, not mine. Back off. <laughs> He said, that's not a good combination. So this little two-year-old kid's mumbling on the phone. I'm hoping it's going to make me feel better. It's making me feel worse. Finally, I've had it. I hear the phone drop to the floor. And now I can hear the kids in the house playing. I'm stuck at the airport. I've got this miserable experience. I'm furious. I'm angry. When all of a sudden I hear crystal clear over the phone, I love you, Grandpa. Mike says, you know what? All my anger, all my anxiety, everything just kind of went out the window. And because he's a Christian, he added, there are people who are so busy and wrapped up in their circumstances that they're just at their wit's end. And if they just stop for a minute, they might hear the God of the universe whisper to them, I love you. Sometimes, church, we get stuck in our circumstances and all we can see is this thing that's in our life. I don't know where the idea came to these friends to dig through the roof. That does not seem like a normal human thing to do to me. Maybe the idea wasn't theirs. 
Maybe the idea was inspired by the Lord. You got to get your friend to Jesus. Don't let the circumstance, we get stuck in our circumstances. And I can't help but wonder if God didn't inspire that idea for them. Get him on the roof, dig through it, and get him in front of my son. Listen, Jesus loves you. He can and does and will forgive your sin. And he's going to start your wholeness journey there. It's going to take more than that, no matter what your circumstances are. But that's where it starts. You do know that, right, when we say our vision benediction every week, we talk about bringing our brokenness to Jesus. I, I want to define that a little bit more for you, right? Because that phrase, bring our brokenness to Jesus, is comprehensive in its nature, right? It describes repentance of our sin, yes. It describes offering the parts of our lives that don't look like Jesus to him. He's the only whole person to ever walk this earth, right? To give those places in our lives that don't look like him to him in submission. Now that bringing of our brokenness can look like what was earlier in Luke 5, right? If you were to go back and read earlier in Luke 5, you'd read the story about Jesus and this miraculous catch of fish, Right? Jesus says, Throw, let down your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, you're crazy, but okay, whatever, we'll do it. And there's this massive haul of fish and they get him in the boat and, and Peter is there with Jesus and he hits his knees in front of the Lord. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He literally falls at Jesus' feet. Sometimes bringing our brokenness to Jesus looks like that. Other times it looks like what we read in this part later in Luke 5. We can, through intercessory prayer, bring our friends and loved ones whose brokenness is destroying their lives and lower them right in front of Jesus. They're stuck in their circumstances and they need your help. And I've seen our church do that week after week. We've mentioned before that every Monday morning, the staff gathers for prayer at 945. That gives Sherry Rodkey enough time to kind of work through the prayer requests and sort out just, I'm here, and thank you for filling out your card. That really helps us, and versus I've got a prayer request. And so we just kind of deal them out like cards. Right? <laughs> you pray for these people, and we just trust that the Holy Spirit's going to put the right connection card in the right staff member's hand. And, and, and every Monday morning at 945, and it's, it's this bittersweet thing for me, because I love to see our people praying for each other. I, it's beautiful, but sometimes you read those requests and it, your heart just breaks because there are kids who have wandered away from the faith that their parents tried to implant in them when they were young. And there are marriages that are struggling and there are people who need jobs. It's bittersweet. I, I love to see people bringing those things before the Lord, but sometimes it's, it's a tough slog to get through them all. Listen, you've got brothers and sisters here who every week are lowering their paralyzed friend or loved one or even their own child in front of Jesus. And so I guess here's my, my challenge for you this morning. If you want to join your brothers and sisters in interceding in prayer, all you have to do is email Sherry at the office and ask to be put on the prayer list. It's, it's srodkey at chapelrock.org. All right, email Sherry, she's in charge of that and ask, I wanna be, be on the prayer list 
prayer warrior list. And you, every Tuesday afternoon, you'll get this email and, and you can just be in prayer for your brothers and sisters. This is one way, church, that we can do this. It's a really practical way that for people who are stuck in their circumstances and they don't know what, the only thing they know to do is take it to Jesus because I don't have a solution for this. And it's a way that you can come alongside them. I want to issue you a challenge. All right? I'm going to issue you a challenge this morning. For one week, for the rest of this week, can, I want to challenge you not to pray for yourself once. It's <laughs> because we're pretty good at it, aren't we? We don't generally need help praying for ourselves. We're, we're, we're good at that. And I want to challenge you toward intercessory prayer. To be like these friends and lower your friend right in front of Jesus. For one week, just try it. I'd, I'd love to hear next Sunday about your experiment. Prayer, asking God to bless your meal doesn't count. Okay, that's, that's okay. But other than that, just pray for others this week and see what happens. To, to, do, to do this, right? Because we've got people who are stuck in their circumstances. And who knows, maybe someone else will pray for you. We have people stuck in their circumstances. We also have people stuck in our patterns. That's the second thing, people stuck in our patterns. The Pharisees were stuck in their patterns. They're locked into a certain way of seeing the world. And when Jesus worked a triple layer miracle, we'll talk about that in a second, they just didn't have a box for this, right? The Pharisees and teachers of the law were drawing some logical conclusions about Jesus based on their reasoning at the time. And their logic, you need to understand this, their logic was pretty much perfect if their assumptions were correct. Here, here was, here's what their logic looked like. Number one, only God can forgive sin. That's correct. That's true. Okay? Number two, this man is forgiving sin. That's correct. He was doing that. Number three, he can't be God. Well, it turns out they were wrong about that. And so he's blaspheming. And they were also wrong about that. See, technically, according to the law of Moses, which we read about in Leviticus 24, even if, even if Jesus really wasn't God in the flesh, of course, we know he was, but even if he wasn't, what he's doing wasn't actually the dictionary definition of blasphemy. In the text, the way it's defined in the law is defiling the name of God by accusing him of being like Satan in some way. That's blasphemy according to the law of Moses. But these leaders are so stuck in their patterns, they don't know what to do when God suggests something, out, God does something outside their ex expectations. And some of you are, are, are feeling that right now. You're stuck in this pattern and you've got this, this mode of being, the, these habits, these things that you're doing. And when God wants to move you outside it, you, you're like, I, 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 don't, I don't have a box for that. I don't know what to do. Are you trying, let me ask you, are you trying to put God in a box? Are, are you limiting the Almighty in some way? Do you realize how ridiculous that sounds, limiting the Almighty? But we do that. And we get stuck in these patterns and I'm gonna, this is, this is the way, this is, well, I'm gonna do it this way. And, and Jesus is like, but that's not my way. That's your way. Your way's broken. <laughs> Try mine. Mine works. Don't put God in a box this morning. That's what the Pharisees did. And it, it, it made it so that they were stuck. There's one more person in the text, though. You've got this paralytic guy. And he represents those of us who are stuck in our brokenness. 
One of the most amazing things about this passage is that Jesus first speaks to the man's greatest need, right? To have his sins washed away. The first thing Jesus says to him is, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. My friend and mentor, Wayne Shaw, he's with the Lord now. He passed away last year, but he, he used to say, there's nothing so therapeutic as having all your sins washed away. I love that. There's no pillow so soft as a clean conscience. Jesus is using this opportunity to do a couple things. First of all, he's using it to teach the Pharisees that he does in fact have the right, the authority, the power, the permission to forgive sin. He's the only one who can release people from the power of sin. And then he releases the man from the lockdown of his paralysis to make his point about his release from sin. And so just as actual healing occurred when Jesus said, get up, actual forgiveness occurred when he said, your sins are forgiven. The second thing Jesus is doing is he's taking away the man's brokenness in every aspect that it affected him. He says, you know, get up, take your mat, go home, right? When Jesus does that, he's taking away every aspect of the man's brokenness. Now, we learn from Mark's account that that, that this was an this miracle was even bigger, right? Because Mark tells us in Mark 2.12, he got up, he took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. So here's my question. How did he do that? It was packed. They couldn't get in. There's no room to get in. You could not put one more person in that room. 